This is Mark Tyler Nobleman, author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, and you're listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 87, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are going to be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 31, which thankfully is a better story than the last couple from that title. First up, though, I've got a bit of feedback to go through. Uh, Last episode, I read an email and and talked about some more comments from Gary Adams. As it happened, not not even like two days after recording that episode, I got another really great comment from Gary, as well as an iTunes review. So I wanted to read those as well. But since I didn't want to have to go to the trouble of redoing that episode because I'm lazy, I'm reading them now. Anyway, his iTunes review reads, Superman History 101. Michael does an absolutely wonderful job telling everything about Superman's history. Even when an episode is covering a pretty boring story, Michael finds a way to keep you interested, be it an interesting tidbit of history or some comical sound bites. Michael is very knowledgeable in his podcasts and is far too modest about it. Not a quality a lot of podcasters have. Job well done, sir. The thrilling adventures of Superman lives up to its name thanks to the host. And thank you very much, Gary, for that. Uh, that's, that's all very nice of you to say. Uh, Gary also posted a comment to the Facebook wall. Uh, he posted this right after he heard episode 75, which was the uh, interview that I did with Mark Tyler Nobleman, author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, which was an, which is an, an all-ages picture book biography about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Um, And Gary wrote, Hey Michael, just listened to episode 75 with the Mark Tyler Nobleman interview. Great job. I think Nobleman was even impressed. You have a lot of journalistic intuition, it seems. You have a real talent for that. I know you work for a paper, but you should try to move into journalism if your current job ever gets old. Again, great job. I'm almost caught up. And thanks, Gary. Uh, Before the switch in positions that I mentioned last episode, I think it was, my boss, who is the editor of the paper, tried a few times to get me to write something, either a regular column or a blog or something, but I was always reluctant because it never really struck me as something that I'd be good at. Uh, I did eventually agree to a blog at one point, but uh, then some things came up and the website got a redesign and that never, you know, came to fruition because the when the website was redesigned, they, they removed the blogs. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do work for a newspaper. I'm not sure I've ever said what I do. Uh, my current job is uh, page designer and copy editor, the latter of which definitely involves some writing skills and a kind of a journalistic mindset. I'm actually not opposed to being an actual staff writer, but uh, 
I don't think it's something that I would necessarily enjoy long term. And I and I still think I'm far too right-brained to be really good at it as well. But hanging around reporters for the last 15 years, or however long I've been a part of newspapers, I do think that helped me in the interview, you know, to know the type of questions to ask and and uh, and how to frame questions and stuff, because, because that is important when you do an interview. Uh, but anyway, thank you very much for the kind words, Gary. I, I really do appreciate all the compliments that you've paid the show. And, and the last one there about the Nobleman interview really, really did make my day when I got it. As I mentioned last episode, Gary is one of the editors and podcasters over at Gotham Knights Online, which is all about Batman. And he's also recently started a new site called the Batman Podcast Connection, which is a blog similar to the Superman Podcast Network, in as much as he showcases all the various Batman podcasts across the net. Again, the URL for that is batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com, and is definitely something to check out if you're at all interested in Batman and or podcasts. But thanks again, Gary, for the compliments and the, and the feedback. All of them, both this episode and last. Sorry I didn't get to include them when I read your original email, but such is the curse of a weekly show that I try to do it in advance. Uh, that said, it's time for a quick break, and then we will come back to talk about some Superman. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, what? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of one to one straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic Death and Return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? 
Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. One bright and shiny dime would have gotten you 64 pages of entertainment beneath the cover of Action Comics number 31. It had a cover date of December 1940 and was released around October 24th of that year, just about a week before Halloween. That puts it coming out just a few days after the end of the Sunday storyline from last episode, while the Daily Strip and the radio show were both in the middle of storylines that we'll be looking at in upcoming episodes. The cover for this issue, much like the one for issue 30, is a bit of a question mark as far as credits. Again, the Grand Comics database credits Joe Schuster and Leo Nowak, or possibly Wayne Boring, while Mike's Amazing World credits Schuster and Paul Loretta. As mentioned when I covered Action Comics number 30, there is conflicting information out there about when Nowak joined the Schuster shop, so that's a mystery that's going to have to remain for the time being. But still, the cover shows Superman swooping down into an enemy camp to rescue a man that's about to be killed by a firing squad. It's a nice cover, but not really the greatest. I, I like the premise. It reminds me more of the Superman stories we saw maybe in like the first year or so where this kind of scene would have been right in line with what we saw Superman doing. They seem to have moved slightly away from that type of story recently, but it's still not a complete departure from you know, the stories we're seeing. My criticism is that Superman looks a little off. Mostly in the inking, as it looks like it was inked in a considerable hurry. It's especially notable in the S-Shield, which while significantly larger than a majority of previous stories, and, and you can really you can really see how much the S has changed in just two years with this cover, but it just looks sloppily done. Um, but still, this isn't the worst cover the title has had. Far from it, actually. And I like the layout and the action of it. Uh, so turning inside, our 12-page Superman story was written by Jerry C. 12-page... Twelve page? That's it. I'm done. I am never buying another Superman comic again. I pay a dime, a whole dime, for 13 pages of Superman. And this is absolutely ridiculous. <coughs> Sorry. Nerd rage. Old habit. Anyway, yes, this is only a 12 page story, rather than the standard 13. I don't know why they chose to drop the page count this issue, but... It marks only the second Superman story in Action Comics that wasn't 13 pages, the other being the nine-pager from Action Comics number 5. Our shorter story was still written by Jerry Siegel, though, and the art was by Jack Burnley, his fourth in his run on Action Comics here, and it has been given the titles The Hand of Morpheus and In the Grip of Morpheus. The somber hand of Morpheus grips a small town, 
leaving all its inhabitants helpless. Until Superman frees the city of its strange spell and shatters the evil clique who caused it. Lois Lane, former millionaire landowner, is taken a vacation. Because it's 1940 and the plot demands it, Lois has Clark Kent drive her there. Clark agrees because Brentville is a sleepy little town and he thinks some time away will do Lois good. Plus, any chance to get away from Lois's condescending sneer is just fine with Clark. When Clark and Lois arrive in Brentville, Clark is amused to find that all across town, people are asleep. He then notices that Lois has also inexplicably fallen asleep. He then sees a car smashed through a bridge railing and about to tumble into the water while the driver inside sleeps. Knowing something strange is going on, but thankful that his superpowers seem to have left him immune, Clark pulls the car back up on the road. After a stop at a fire station and grabbing a pair of gas masks to protect himself and Lois, Clark drives to a home on the edge of town, hoping that whatever is happening doesn't extend that far. He pleads with the homeowner, a thin, white-bearded man, who we later learn is named Professor Hunter, to use the phone, and calls the sheriff of a nearby town, saying that everyone in Brentville has fallen asleep. As he makes the call for help, another man in the home, Kolb, raves that Clark is insane and angrily grabs the phone from his hand. As the professor begs Kolb not to get violent, Clark starts to leave. But Kolb, with wrench in hand, runs up behind Clark, intent on more than mere violence. Catching Kolb's approach out of the corner of his eye, Clark turns and, accidentally, shoulders Kolb in the jaw, causing him to drop the wrench. Meanwhile, in the next town over, the sheriff sends a couple officers to look into Clark's call, even though he thinks it might just be a prank. Back in Brentville, Clark, apparently having simply left the professor's home after nearly being murdered, returns to the car just as Lois starts to revive. He explains about the gas masks and how the entire town is asleep. They're about to drive back to the main road when Clark spots a car carrying four men, all of whom are wearing gas masks. Using his super hearing, Clark overhears the men talking about how they're looking for a man that Kolb had warned them about and that they're sure he won't get away. Just about then, the police from the next town over arrive in Brentville and find everyone asleep. Unfortunately, they too are stricken by the strange thing that has fallen over the town and immediately fall asleep as their car careens down the road. Clark sees the car heading straight towards a child who has fallen asleep in the roadway, and after using the Crypto Claw to render Lois unconscious, Clark dashes after the runaway auto. Grabbing hold of the car, he uses all of his mighty strength to bring it to a halt, mere inches from the sleeping child. As Clark returns to the car and revives Lois by relieving the pressure on the nerve, new power alert, the booming sound of an explosion is heard nearby. With his telescopic x-ray vision, Clark sees the men that passed them earlier are robbing the town bank. Apparently thinking she's the hero of the strip, Lois runs after them. But since she's very much not the hero of the strip, she is grabbed by one of the thugs who removes her mask, causing her to fall asleep. Using Lois's obligatory unconsciousness to his advantage, Clark changes to Superman. The Man of Steel charges into the bank, and after handing out a heaping helping of knuckle sandwich, he removes the thug's gas mask to ensure that they stay unconscious, 
before grabbing Lois and heading back to the car. And this just occurred to me, but Superman just beat the stuffing out of these guys. They're unconscious and possibly have concussions. And he's making sure they stay asleep by removing their gas masks. Isn't sleeping right after receiving a concussion a really, really bad idea? Anyway, meanwhile, having been drawn by the sound of the explosion, people run towards Brentville, but fall asleep as soon as they enter the town. However, some are far enough away to see this happen, so the police chief in the next town over orders additional men to go check things out, but this time to wear gas masks. Superman sees the officers arriving and quickly changes back to Clark. He then puts a mask back on Lois, causing her to revive, and they, and they approach the officers. However, the sheriff starts to put them under arrest. Clark and Lois try to explain that they're reporters, but the sheriff isn't buying it. He says they're wearing gas masks, so they obviously must be with the gang. Clark explains that he was the one that used the phone at Professor Hunter's to call them and alert them to the trouble, and the sheriff says that they can easily check on that. So the sheriff, an officer, Clark and Lois, and several of the thugs who tried to rob the bank all pile into one car, circus clown style, and go to the professor's home, only to be confronted by Kolb. Kolb claims that his employer, the professor, has been gone for a week and that he's never seen either Clark or Lois before. And with that, the sheriff locks the Daily Planet's finest reporters in a nearby room and says he'll question them after he's done grilling the thugs. Knowing he has to act fast, Clark breaks out the Crypto Claw once again and knocks Lois out. He switches to Superman and is about to go into action when he sees a hypodermic needle slide through the keyhole on the door and squirt hydrocyanic acid into the room. Leaping to a heavily barred window, Superman rips the bars free and then grabs Lois and leaps out of the room. He puts the still unconscious Lois in the second floor of a nearby garage and then uses his telescopic vision to see someone inside Professor Hunter's laboratory. That someone, however, isn't Hunter, but Kolb, a nameless thug, and a sinister figure by the name of Baron Munsdorf. The three talk about how Kolb has been unable to locate the secret formula for a certain type of gas. This causes Munsdorf to grow angry, as he wants the formula for his country, and he demands Kolb go down to the cellar and make Hunter talk. Unbeknownst to the plotters, however, Superman has positioned himself on the window ledge and heard their entire conversation. Leaping down to the ground, he unleashes a barrage of blows, drilling into the earth and soon surfacing in the cellar. Hunter explains that he hired Kolb as an assistant, not knowing that he was an agent of a spy ring led by Munsdorf. The ring was trying to get the formula for a new type of anesthetic gas that Hunter had invented and despite bondage and torture, Hunter had refused to give up the formula. But Kolb had stolen a sample of the gas, which is what caused everyone in Brentville to fall asleep. Mystery solved, Superman grabs Hunter and crashes through the wall of the cellar. He deposits the professor outside where he'll be safe, allegedly, and then heads back inside as Hunter warns the Man of Steel that Munsdorf is desperate and may have found one of the professor's deadly ray guns. Superman re-enters the home just as Munsdorf shoots Kolb and the nameless thug for their failures, and then turns the gun on Superman. 
But, as we all know, bullets don't even merit being called an annoyance to the Man of Steel. So Munsdorf whips out Hunter's deadly subatomic death ray gun and fires directly at Superman's chest. A weird crackling sound fills the room as the mighty subatomic discharge flares against the Man of Steel. The shock is terrific on Superman's frame, but leaves him unharmed. Realizing his efforts are fruitless, Munsdorf aims the gun out the window, shooting directly at the garage where Superman left Lois. Leaping out into the night, Superman smashes through the side of the garage and grabs Lois's body, spiriting her away from the advancing flames. He carries her back to the room where they were left by the sheriff, and then leaps back down to the ground just as Munsdorf fires the gun at Professor Hunter himself. Superman dives between the two men, and the atomic bolt deflects off Superman's chest, bouncing back and hitting Munsdorf. With the bad guy dead and no time to shed any tears, Superman returns to the room with Lois. He quickly repairs the window and then resumes his guise as Clark Kent, just as the sheriff and hunter enter. We get a quick recap that the gas's effects on the town should wear off soon, and Hunter pledges to turn all of his deadly discoveries over to the U.S. War Department. Clark tells Lois that now that everything is settled, she can finish her vacation. But Lois says she's going back to Metropolis, because Clark isn't getting all the credit for this story. Even though she was asleep for three-fourths of it. But Clark is nice enough not to point that out, because this story has reached the end. Moving into notes, the story opens with a half-page splash, showing a car with a sleeping driver behind the wheel careening down the street right at a woman who has fallen asleep in the road while Superman, fully awake, leaps in to make the save. It's an okay splash. I I like it, and it's well-drawn. It just isn't the most exciting opening splash. Um, It feels more like a regular panel from the story rather than the big open. I can't really put my finger on what could have been done different to improve it, but it just feels like maybe they should have gone back to the drawing board or or spent a little more time thinking of ideas for for the splash. But I do like it, and I like that even though it isn't a direct scene from the story, it feels like it could be because it definitely ties into the plot. Um, The titles, which, remember, were all given afterwards, and the opening narration all reference Morpheus, which is, of course, a reference, obviously, to uh, Greek mythology, where Morpheus was the name of the god of dreams. And there was also a character by the name of King Morpheus in the Windsor McKay uh, strip Little Nemo in Slender- Slenderland, <laughs> Little Nemo in Slumberland, which was cited by both Siegel and Schuster as a childhood favorite. Moving on to page two, there's a nice panel on this page of Clark pulling the car back onto the bridge. The neat thing is, he's still wearing his suit. Instead of changing to Superman, he just jumped out of the car and grabbed the uh, car that was in peril. And I like that because it really gives you a sense of urgency, like the car was just about to slide off and he simply didn't have time to change. It is a bit careless. I mean, at this point in the story, Clark didn't know that every single person in the town had fallen asleep, but at the same time, it plays into the eerie nature of the beginning of the story, which I'll actually talk more about uh, in my overall comments. And I like that 
when Clark went to the fire station, he grabbed two masks. Not only did it make it more plausible that he could stay as Clark rather than Superman for a little longer, but even though it seemed like he was immune to whatever was putting the people to sleep, he really had no way of knowing that. I, I do... I'm doing a lot of reading into this because they don't explain why he grabbed two masks. But I like the idea that at this point in his uh, career, maybe Superman isn't completely sure what his limits are. I mean, he's been immune or invulnerable to a lot of things so far, but he doesn't know what's going on here. So that he had the mind to grab a mask just in case was kind of a neat idea. Page three, there's a nice moment here as Clark, quote-unquote, accidentally shoulders Kolb, preventing him from, you know, clocking him with the wrench. I've talked about this kind of thing before. Uh, we had a similar scene back in Action Comics number 18, I think it was. But I really like when there's a scenario where Clark can use his fake bumbling to, to actually do something good, even if the people aren't aware that, you know, he's necessarily doing it. Page 4, this is where Clark stops the runaway police car, again, while wearing his suit. And while that's cool, like the other scene, what's also awesome is that he's grabbing the car by the frame, not the detachable bumper. So you can actually buy into the physics of him being able to stop the car because, as many people have pointed out, if you're super strong and grab a speeding car by the bumper, you're likely only going to succeed in ripping off the bumper. Um, and kind of shifting gears to an artistic note, as if the differences in Schuster's and Burnley's art weren't apparent enough, at the bottom of this page, there's the kid that's asleep in the roadway, and just the difference in the way this kid looks and the way kids look in these Schuster-drawn issues is a huge contrast. Both, well, more than both, but Schuster and Paul Cassidy and Paul Loretta, the, you know, the other early... Uh, ghost artists drew very cartoonish looking children but here this kid actually looks like a young kid much like Burnley's adult characters there's a more and here's that word again realistic but not photo referenced look to the characters that I, I really really dig in Burnley's artwork page five when Superman charges into the bank to stop the gang trying to rob it one of the thugs turns and yells it's Superman which was nice to see. It definitely seems like Superman's popularity is growing outside of Metropolis in, in the more recent stories. And I wonder at times how much of this was planned by Siegel. I mean, if he was intentionally increasing the number of in-story characters that recognized Superman at slow increments, or if it was just a, a coincidence. Because in the earliest stories, no one knew who he was. And then we had that story with Superman's phony manager and that circus performance, which I called his unofficial coming out. But even after that, he's encountered people outside of and in Metropolis who didn't know who he was. Though those things are decreasing just as Superman's popularity in the real world is growing and growing. So it's it's kind of strange to see the parallels there. Um, it, it's just one of those things that I'd really like to know, but unfortunately we we probably never will. Uh, jumping to page 7, I thought the situation with the sheriff pointing 
the blame at Lois and Clark because they were wearing gas masks. I thought that was kind of clever. It's really easy to make fun of it, but it's an understandable leap, too. Uh, you go to a town where everyone is unconscious, and you see two people wearing gas masks. So it's easy to think that they might be tied in with it. Page 8, Clark and Lois are in the locked room, and someone sticks a syringe through the keyhole and squirts hydrocyanic acid into the room. Now, I know hydrocyanic acid is very, very dangerous and deadly, but I don't think it quite works like this. Superman sees the needle poking through the keyhole, and he just freaks out. Uh, I mean, the worst it would do is make a little puddle on the floor. Stay clear of that, and you're fine, right? But even if not, he brings Lois back to the room later on in the story and leaves her alone. So it couldn't have been too bad. Um, The fifth panel on the page where Superman is ripping the bars off the window is very, very similar to the cover of Superman number 5, which was penciled by Wayne Boring. I mean, all the way down to the pose of Superman's body and, you know, the, the bars that he's ripping off the window. It's just a very weird coincidence. Um, But I I do have to ask, why are there bars on the window of what is a residence? I mean, it's Professor Hunter's house, and he's clearly not in in with the spy ring. I mean, I can understand security, but huge iron bars on the window seems a little bit extreme. Jumping ahead once again to page 10, this is the OPOE, obligatory page of exposition, where we learn all of the secrets that have driven the story to this point, including that Hunter is not only creating anesthetics so powerful that a small sample can knock out an entire town within a few seconds, but that he's also in the business of inventing subatomic death ray guns that, if at the end of the story is any indication, can cause buildings to catch on fire and vaporize human beings. So, again, we have a crackpot scientist creating military-grade chemical and physical weapons in his basement. And I'm just genuinely surprised that it wasn't Earth that blew up instead of Krypton at this point. Uh, Jumping jumping ahead once more to the final page, page 12, and Munzdorf dies, and it's a big, oh well, from Superman. Thankfully, it wasn't strictly the Man of Steel's fault this time. I mean, yes, the death ray bounced off his hand and hit Munzdorf, but... Superman was just leaping in to save Hunter, and it didn't intentionally deflect the ray back at Munzdorf. It just kind of happened, one of those things. But still, it would have been nice to get a little more acknowledgement than just, well, that's one less spy for us to worry about. And yes, that's exactly the dialogue in the comic. He says, that's one less spy for the country to worry about. And then they go back to the room, and he changes back to Clark. (laughs) Overall, you know, despite my my uh, minor criticism, criticisms of it, I would say that this is the best action comic story since Jack Burnley began his run as artist. As much as I've loved the artwork and the other stories, the writing has ranged from meh to downright bad. But I really, really like this one. It wasn't terribly exciting. You know, we didn't have any tremendous Superman feats or a dramatic cliffhanger or anything like that, but I enjoyed it. Uh, The pace was pretty consistent, so it didn't drag or feel like you were reading two stories when you're only reading one. And another good thing is that there weren't any 
complete side tangents like we get in so many stories. Uh, but to Siegel's credit, those do seem to have tapered off a lot in the, uh, the comic book stories. Not so much in the uh, newspapers, but there you go. Instead, we have a solid story with a nice little mystery that they kind of built up to revealing. And really, it was reminiscent of the kind of stories that would get told later on Adventures of Superman. In fact, I can see this story playing out well, relatively unchanged, in the first or second season of the show. You know, the black and white years. Though Siegel didn't play it up as much as he could have, the beginning of the... Pe- the beginning pages of the story had a real eerie quality to them. Clark and Lois arrive in this town, and everyone is asleep. And then Lois falls asleep. Then they come across this car that's about to fall off, and and all this other stuff. And it's just a ghost town. But there are people. I mean, it, there are people there, so it's not a ghost town. But there's no one active because they're all asleep. And then there's the shot of Clark driving across town while he and uh, the sleeping Lois wear gas masks. It's just a really different feeling than the previous stories, and, and I liked it quite a bit. Like I said, it would you, you can really see this playing out well in Adventures of Superman with George Reeves and either Noel Neal or Phyllis Coates in the role of Lois Lane. Um, one criticism that could be levied at it is that there's little chance that this entire town could be caused to fall asleep with just a simple sample of the gas. I don't know, it's just not reasonable to believe that a sample would be enough to affect the whole town. Plus, gas dispersion doesn't work like that. Even if it could be spread enough to knock everyone out, it would dissipate soon afterwards. And and it wouldn't cause people to fall asleep as soon as they cross the town border. But I think that's one of the things that could just be chalked up to, again, it being 1940 and that kind of stuff was always done and, you know, basic rules of science did not apply. Uh, the last thing, story-wise, that I'll point out is that they they never explicitly state what country it is that Munsdorf and, and Kolb are working for, but clearly it is meant to be a vague reference to Germany, or at least a, a pseudo-Germany within the context of Superman's world. Kolb is a German name. Baron Munsdorf is at least German-sounding. He talks about getting Hunter's formula for his country and and that kind of thing. And interestingly, while Siegel obviously had no way of knowing this, hydrocyanic acid was used uh, quite a bit as part of the process in the Nazi extermination camps. I'm kind of looking forward to... Well, I don't know if looking forward to is the best description, but I'm interested in when we start getting explicit references to Nazis and Nazi Germany in Superman stories. This was released in October 1940, and the U.S. was still officially neutral, and would actually remain so for technically a while, but the Axis was expanding quite a bit. I mean, the war's going on at this point, if you, if you, to be blunt about it. And things are definitely heating up, so... I expect more and more of these vague references in upcoming storylines, and I'm curious when we'll get an explicit reference to either Hitler or Nazis or, you know, Nazi Germany. Uh, Well, discounting the Look Magazine story, which I don't really count because that was specifically done to reference 
uh, Hitler and Stalin. Um, Art-wise, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, Jack Burnley is, as always, amazing. In fact, this may be the best outing yet here in Action Comics. Superman looks great, Clark looks great, Lois looks great, all the characters that we'll never see again have, you know, unique and individual looks so that there's no chance you'll confuse who is who in the story. Much like with Boring and Commissaro in the newspapers, I've kind of run out of things to say because Burnley's work is just so good each and every time and remarkably consistent for a Golden Age artist. But definitely check out the show notes for samples from the story because I, I, I just can't say enough good things about Jack Burnley. If you would like to read this, it's been reprinted twice. First in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, and then in Superman Chronicles, Volume 4. And it's actually the final story in that Chronicles volume. So, beginning with the next uh, comic story we cover, we'll be moving on to Volume 5. Which, it's just kind of hard to believe that as as new as the show... I mean, I I know the show's been going on for more than a year and a half at this point, but we've made it through four volumes of Chronicles, and that's just unbelievable at times to think about. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Other features in this issue of Action Comics include Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. Zaytara also gets a reduction in pages this issue, dropping down to 9 from the 11 that it was previously. Unlike Superman's reduction in pages, however, Zaytara's is permanent, as it will be 9 pages for the foreseeable future. So, not only is Superman still the longest strip in the book, but now it's the only one with a double-digit page count, which, too bad for the other strips, but kind of cool for Superman. Uh, there's also half-page ads for Superman number 8, which we'll be looking at in two or three episodes, the Superman radio show, Batman number 3, All-Star Comics, or All-Star Quarterly as the ad calls it, number 2, and the Superman and Batman lines of books. There's also an ad for the Crypto Ray Gun, the same basic ad as before, but it gets a small redesign, making the crypto ray gun portion more dominant and reducing the space given to plugging other products. And the tiny space filler ad for the gun is in this issue too, 
buried at the bottom of, of the page by a text story. And finally, we have the 19th Superman of America page, which strangely gets shrunk to three quarters of a page so that they can plug the radio show below it. But the message from Clark Kent talks about the benefits of staying alert and how the club members need to keep a clean mind and a healthy body so that they can always be alert and at their best. And Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code URANUS, number six on your Superman of America club decoder, is to be alert is to be on the road to success in anything we attempt. Outside of Action Comics, there were more fun comics, number 61, with a nice Dr. Fate cover by Howard Sherman. It also has the final Radio Squad story with Chad Grothkoff as the regular artist. Uh, Fred Ray, a name, a name that we'll be hearing quite a bit more of down the road in connection with Superman, takes over next issue with Jerry Siegel still writing. And Grothkoff will actually be back uh, on the strip for one or two more stories, but it's a year or more down the road. And he is definitely off as the permanent, or as the uh, regular uh, artist. Detective Comics number 45 saw the totally awesome Batman and plucky sidekick Robin taking on the Joker, who is a villain that really didn't make too many appearances in Detective in the early days. Most of his stories were in Batman, it seems, for whatever reason. There were Adventure Comics number 56 and Flash Comics number 12, the latter seeing a new strip added to the book in Les Sparks, Radio Amateur, by Don Cameron. Getting back to the Dark Knight, who seems to be coming up a lot this episode, there was Batman number 3, which had a really awesome cover of Batman and Robin running towards the reader. And inside it had four brand new Batman stories, including the third appearance of Catwoman, and the final one until mid-1942, actually. There was also All-American Comics number 21, with a great modern-looking Green Lantern cover by Sheldon Mod. Excuse me, Sheldon Muldoff. And finally, there was More Fun Comics number 62, a second issue of that title for the month, where, like I said, Fred Ray takes over the art on Radio Squad with Jerry Siegel still writing. And outside of DC, there really wasn't much going on. Uh, really, overall, kind of a slow month. I mean, the Action Comics issue was kind of meh, and there was no issue of Superman. Probably the biggest thing this month was Batman number 3 with that Catwoman appearance or possibly Detective 45 Uh, but anyway, outside of DC not much going on because Marvel slash Timely only had one comic and nothing much of note from any other publishers You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero.
Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Next episode, we return to the radio for the first time in a number of episodes, actually, for a story that I've really been looking forward to. And keen-eared listeners will already know what that story is because I actually mentioned it in a previous episode. Uh, But I want to thank you all for joining me this episode. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions about the show, or if you just want to say howdy, please feel free to drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also leave comments at the website, which is greatcrypton.com, on individual show postings, which include links and images from the story and other fun Easter eggs from time to time. At the site, you will also find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. Follow the show on either site to get updates when there's a new episode of the show or you have other show-related news. And there's actually been several new likes to the Facebook page in recent weeks, so welcome to all the new listeners. Uh, Twitter is a little slower, but it seems like the people who listen to the show are more of the Facebook-using variety rather than Twitter, but maybe I could be reading into that based on how I am. I mean, I, I do have a personal Twitter account, but I rarely post anything on it. Anyway, at greatcrypton.com, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link. If you use iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could be like Gary and leave an iTunes review because it would make me think that you are even more awesome than you already are. Uh... But don't forget the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network for all kinds of awesome Man of Steel-related content. And lastly, another reminder about my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor, which you can find at GreenLanternsLight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.
Bum, 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 bum. 